the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. You know, whether you're reading the news headlines in 1963 or 2019, you quickly realize the world is ending for someone somewhere every day. That's a heavy way to start, uh, but we're going somewhere with it. Hi, I'm Ben. Hey, I'm Noel. It's true, Ben. I mean, we think about the Great Depression, right? But if there's a Great Depression, surely there must be dozens, if not hundreds, of minor depressions, mm-hmm. mini depressions, mm-hmm. micro depressions? Recessions there you go. Is, is a word that that's often bandied about. And, you know, depending on where you grew up, you probably heard various pundits in your country, your province, or your state claiming that a depression rivaling the Great Depression was looming imminently on the horizon. Looming, indeed, like our own super producer, Casey Pegram. Who looms large. The man has swag. And speaking of swag... Let's talk a little bit about the 1920s in the United States, also called the Roaring Twenties, right? The Gilded (sighs) Age. That's Mm -hmm. what it sounded like all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because at this time, there was a woeful divide between the haves and the have-nots in the U.S., and everything seemed like, depending on your position in society, everything seemed like it was growing at this frenetic, hectic place. Until, that is, the stock market crashed in October of 1929. What's the thing? I mean, there there was this sense that everything was just hunky-dory. The well-to-do would spend their money hand over fist on luxury goods and dancing and all of that stuff. And the people that had less money, credit was relatively easy to come by. They were spending hand over fist with money they did not actually own. And as you can see, the situation was unsustainable. Eventually, the bubble, as bubbles do, went and 
Our country entered what is called, today, the Great Depression. By 1932, the economy had contracted by 31%, and an estimated 13 million people were left unemployed. Uh, for comparison, that's that's like 25% of the workforce. Jeez. Franklin Delano Roosevelt took office in 1932. He started something called the New Deal, which was designed to boost federal spending, uh, create government jobs for people who couldn't get private sector jobs, and ultimately led to some some really amazing cultural progress and great public works here in the U.S. But today's story is not about that. Today's story is about how people managed to get by when they found themselves in a situation where the bank they counted on was closed, uh, the currency that they were so used to, the U.S. dollar, was gone. Yeah, like poof, it's gone overnight. This thing that we thought we could rely on that would always be there for us when we woke up the next morning was now uh, really shown to be this sort of ephemeral idea. And the Great Depression was worldwide. In its uh, in its scope, it wasn't just. I mean, you know, it's a it's a chain reaction because everything's interconnected because of trade. Um, and this is how the U.S. Department of Commerce characterized the the Great Depression uh, in general. It has like a list that they that they officially used to break this down. Uh, and there were nine points, and let's let's split them up. And no round robin. Let's do it. Um, so number one, an unemployed population estimated at over twelve million. This of course is in the uh, United States portion of it. Mm. Uh, number two. A serious agricultural situation resulting from excessive production, ruinous, ruinously low prices, and large debts. Number three, a financial and credit system in grave danger of collapse. Number four, a large internal debt on the government side. Number five, almost insurmountable barriers to foreign trade. Number six, a, quote, perplexing foreign debt situation. I love that word. Yeah, it's also very vague, but I, it, just, it just means, like, huh. What are we going to do about this? This is quite perplexing. It also just candidly sounds like someone at the Department of Commerce said, how can we explain this in one sentence? Yeah. Because <laughs> we can't do the whole five-page paper, right? They really are going for a brevity kind of thing here. Mm -hmm. uh, number seven, an unbalanced federal budget. Number eight, disorganized state and municipal finances. Number nine, increasing disorder and an almost complete lack of confidence on the part of the people. That's kind of key here, isn't it? Right. See, this is this is the problem. A lot of the larger financial things we're talking about wouldn't occur to a lot of the people in the US on the ground at the time. You know what I mean? Say, oh well, foreign debt is complicated. <laughs> Excuse me, foreign debt is perplexing, but if you are, you know, living in an agricultural community somewhere in Oklahoma, you will be more concerned with what is happening in your neck of the global woods. So the problem that people were having, in addition to all this economic uncertainty, this lack of faith in the economic system and the, uh, the very difficult situation of trying to find a job when you were unemployed, the thing that really bugged them is that there was very little physical money in the hands of people. And because people didn't know, like if you had, you know, 10 $1 bills and you thought it might be months or even years before you ever saw any physical currency again, you wouldn't use that. You would try to barter, you would try to borrow, you would hoard 
the physical currency you had. And that slows down the economic circulatory system. This is kind of the era of stuffing your mattress with cash. Burying keeping stuff in jars. Keeping it on yeah. hand. Let's, let's, let's do a little metaphor just that we can all understand. Twinkies. Okay, let's say Twinkies are currency. Uh, if, if everyone's holding on to the Twinkies and just eating themselves with their supply of Twinkies little by little, we don't see Twinkies in circulation anymore than Twinkies kind of lose their value or lose their meaning in terms of the way it's interconnected in our society, right? Such is the case with cash. So you have to replace Twinkies with something else. You have to replace cash with something else because no one's feeding it back into the system. So what do you have to do? You have to create a new delicious snack. But wait, someone might say, what about banks? Isn't it their job to keep money flowing? That's that's a good that's a good point. What about the hostess company? Why aren't they putting more Twinkies out into the world? So the problem is that these banks can only do their job when they are open, and a lot of them close permanently. It was both an effect of the early stage of the Great Depression, and it was an exacerbating factor. It got so bad that in 1933, President Roosevelt declared a banking holiday Uh, quote, unquote, this shut down the entire national banking system. But between 1930 and that date in March 1933, about half the banks in the United States had either permanently closed or merged with others. And the ones that were still around cut back their deposits and loans, and they also started – you know, basically hoarding money. Mm -hmm. So everybody's hoarding cash. And of course – It makes total sense. You know, um, without getting too personal, a lot of my family is from um, rural Appalachia or Appalachia, however you prefer to say it. And I I had relatives who were who still didn't trust still didn't trust banks, which was crazy growing up with uh, with those people. And yes, they were older, but they did have stories about, you know, burying stuff in the ground or hiding it in a creek or a creek somewhere and then coming back and finding it years later. The problem is that when no one is spending money and and money Anyway, uh, uh, the concept of economy is arguably a religion, but money is an article of faith, right? And when no one believes in it, then it loses its social value. So this causes deflation. The money's not in the system. No one – people probably have some cash stashed away somewhere, but they're never going to touch it. And with less and less physical cash available and with money worth less and less than before – they did. Uh, they did. As you say, no, they turned to alternatives. So, Ben, just, just to backtrack a little bit, we, we, for, we foreshadowed this idea of alternatives. I really tried to make my Twinkie metaphor work. I'm going to let that one die. I'm fine with that. Um, I tried my best. But here's my question. Why wasn't the government pushing more money back into circulation? Mm-hmm. Like, why, why was it entirely about the individuals? Is it because it had deflated so much because of that loss of confidence that what would be the point? No one's using it anyway. What are they just going to do? Go door to door and say, here's a bunch of money. Can you please spend it? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question, right? Um, and I didn't think that Twinkie metaphor was bad at all. I don't think you should beat yourself up, man. I appreciate that, Ben. So there are a couple of I- intervening variables here or contributing factors maybe would be a better way to say it. Uh, first is that we know – from various cases throughout history and some that happened well before the Great Depression that when you just start minting money and you just start printing money, 
uh, minting coins and printing money, then people are aware that there's much more money out there, and that that drives these economic problems to even further extremes. It makes total you know? sense, Ben. Yeah. So, they, so it honestly would have just doubled down on the problem. It would have devalued the currency even more because now it's everywhere. People are literally handing it out in the streets. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, well, I, I definitely don't believe in this. I need there to be some scarcity in order for me to feel like my money is worth something. You know, I learned about these kind of tendencies at a young age. I don't know if I ever told you. This is a weird, this is a weird, very short story. Uh, one time, when I was when I was a little bit younger, I was I was going through uh, some tough times in my life, and I asked my I asked my dad, who's appeared on this show. I said, I said, hey, hey, pops, do you think I'll I'll ever actually be a millionaire? And then he said, well, you know, son, uh, you could be a millionaire tomorrow because money is just an idea, and they can always print more. And uh, then if you're a millionaire, everybody will be a millionaire. It'll be horrible. It'll be worthless. And I was like, wow, it's cold water, man. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> was that like, well, did that make you feel better or worse? Or did that kind of like introduce a whole new existential crisis to you? I mean, that was, it's a very good point. Yeah, it, well, it is a good point, but it's also kind of like, what's the point at that point, right? <laughs> right, like, exactly. why bother? <laughs> Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
So, you know, maybe these people were in a why bother situation. This idea that you could not trust Uncle Sam's coupons led people to say, well, we have to we have to do something because, you know, before the era of currency, the most popular form of transactional medium is going to be bartering just straight. I have eight Twinkies, but I really want um, the Hostess cupcakes with the little lattice of white icing on them. Ding-dongs. Are those ding-dongs? Ho-hos? Ho-hos? Little Debbies? Maybe they're Little Debbies. They look like cupcakes. They're Hostess cupcakes. I think they're ding-dongs. Really? Yeah. Ah, what a terrible name. It's a really bad name. <laughs> so, <laughs> it sounds like a depression era snack. Honestly. Um, well, here's the thing. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna beg Casey to sure. give us a little a little clip of. Uh, remember that scene in Batman, the movie, the motion picture. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Can we get a little Prince cue real quick? Trust. And now, folks. It's time for who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Me? I'm giving away free money. And where is the Batman? He's at home washing his tights. Yeah, that's the scene where the Joker is passing out money and everyone's freaking out and gathering it up off the streets. Then they look at it and realize it has the Joker's face on it. Sort of like your Ben Bucks, right? Is he, yes, but uh, but that's a work of fiction. Ben Bucks are very real. Okay, that's fair. And in a way, this episode is kind of an advertisement for uh, for the uh, validity of these sorts of things. Because aside from being the only kind of currency you can trust in these our modern days and uncertain times, uh, Ben Bucks are something that exists with historical precedent. No, what what is script? Yeah, exactly. The question of who do you trust? You don't trust Uncle Sam. You don't trust the big banks because they screwed you over. They and, screwed the pooch. And they might close They tomorrow. might close. They're also not around. They're not there for you, right? Mm-hmm. Who is there for you? Maybe at least at arm's length is your local municipality, perhaps even your local shopkeeper, your local economy that is there for you to see and to interact with. So Scrip is cash. Well, not, cash is even a, a weird kind of ephemeral term. It is currency issued by local governments uh, or businesses or even human people. Right, even individuals. We agree that it means something because we say it does. And I don't know how they did the math where it, you know, equals certain, you know, the amount of goods they had to trade or whatever. But Mm -hmm. it obviously had, had to exchange it for something and there had to be a system that gave it some value that they agreed upon. Yeah. It's but it is a, all faith-based, isn't it? Ben? Yeah, it's an IOU. Um, and script has been used in uh, various various ways throughout history. It reminds me of that one uh, that one great song. What is it? 16 Tons? I don't know. How oh, do you get? Oh, yep. Company Store. Yeah, Company Store. Yep, yep all about yep. the Company Store, which is kind of inherently userous <laughs> because the idea of the Company Store uh-huh. is that you're working off your debt and you're getting goods in exchange for your labor, but you're not really able to ever work your way out of debt because that's right. the line, another day older and deeper, deeper, deeper in debt. In debt. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's a reference to businesses wherein someone would have to they would work at this business they would be paid not in cash but in a script that was only usable 
at a store that was also owned by the business for which you were employed. Yeah. I mean, a, a modern day example that I think something's being done about is a lot of Lyft or Uber drivers will lease their car through Lyft or Uber. And then the money they make driving for that service literally goes back to paying off that note. Mm. But it's at incredibly inflated uh, interest rates. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like it's a losing proposition. Although on a good note, uh, there was recently a court case, maybe not in maybe not in this country yet, where someone was uh, – an Uber driver was decreed to be an employee and not just an independent contractor. So hopefully they'll get some more rights. But yeah, that's a good – you know, that's a good comparison I didn't think about. Uh, those are the ways – we named two ways, Uber and Lyft and uh, – Company stores, those are the ways in which script can be used to uh, to hurt the employees, hurt the proletariat. But in this case, script was used to keep local economies going. Because it all goes back again, Casey. Who do you trust? Just. Yeah, you're right, Ben. We're talking about negative examples. This was a way to help economies exist. Mm-hmm. And it was about trust. Yeah, yeah. So no matter how well you know everyone in your community, no matter how tight-knit you are, it can be difficult to exist completely on a barter system. So let's say there's one family um, or one proprietor, some some lady or some guy owns the local general store, right? And they've been extending credit to everyone in the community, and they decide to start issuing script. And their script, let's say it's uh, Bandarino's General Goods and Sundry. And Bandarino's General Goods and Sundry issues script to the people, the good people of the town of (laughs) Bandarino. uh, And now they start using it like cash. They don't just use it at that store, though. They use it with one another. Okay, here's the problem with bartering real quick is that it it can very quickly get into some intermediaries and complicated plot twists. So let's say, Noel, that you are an Eggman and that you have... An Egger? An, an Egger, an Eggman, uh, an egg enthusiast, you know, a poultry farmer who specializes in eggs for some, for some reason. And you want to buy uh, some glue to fix something related to your business, a, a shack or something. You want some caulk or whatever. And Casey, being a, a the glue man in town, uh, you would be able to give him some eggs, but Casey doesn't want glue. Instead, Casey wants uh, a different good or service. He wants someone, like let's say I'm a blacksmith or a farrier. He wants someone to put uh, to shoe his horses, right? And you say, look, I've got these eggs. I just, I need this glue. You know, a storm's coming in. And then he says, he says, look, I am lousy with eggs. You got to give me something else. And then you go to me and you say, look, I got these eggs. Can I give you these eggs? And you shoe this guy's horses and then he'll give me this glue. So already now we have so many transactions Too happening. Many. Too right. Many. And currency simplifies that. It absolutely simplifies that. And this local um, or regional issued script uh, would be printed or carved or what have you issued on a, a various and sundry materials. Everything from like wooden tokens, the idea of a wooden nickel, you know, mm-hmm. you ever heard of that one? Don't take them. Don't take them. Or a fish skin, um, parchment of some kind. Um, you know, you've heard of the idea of uh, of in indigenous cultures using 
things like seashells Cowry as a shells, currency. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that came back into, into fashion here. Um, you did have, you can look it up online, and it's pretty amazing because there is um, there are currency museums, I'm sure, where you can see dozens of these things, all different kinds. Um, sort of like the early days of speculatory currency that we talked about in previous episodes, mm-hmm. right? The $2 bill episode, I believe. Yeah. Um, printed regular-looking bills that had... Uh, in, that had markings on them and text on them and images that would link them to a specific uh, market, let's call it, right? Yeah. And yeah. they would be accepted, you know, with open arms in these markets. And then sometimes in regions outside of these markets, they'd accept them too. But what would they do? They'd charge you those Lyft or Uber car loan rates. Right, right. So one uh, Bandarino piece of script, mm-hmm. right, that you usually use in the good town of Bandarino, uh, you can go to the other town of Umberto Echoville and uh, you can give them that script, but they'll say, hey, this is worth four of these equals one of the Umberto Echoville script that we use. So now you are you have 25% of the buying power you used to. This So this kept local businesses alive, but it also made the larger regions fragmented. You can see an excellent collection of this script at the Museum of American Finance, which is a real thing. And you can see the various uh, issuers. You can also, and I think this is pretty fascinating, uh, to your point, Noel, you can see the different materials that were used. We'll just we can say a couple of examples. I, I got to tell you, a lot of these look better than uh, modern currency. Uh, one looks like kind of a monopoly bill, uh, Hepner sheepskin script, which is worth one dollar from nineteen thirty four, I believe. And then, did you see the one for Mecosta County, Michigan? Also no. from nineteen thirty three. No, and Ben, Ben, you have the inside scoop on this. Give it to me. It's wonderful. It's it's striking. It's bold. It's like the Dorito if a Dorito was a piece of currency. It's a, it's bright yellow, and it looks like it's a four-color print job. They've got some great photos, and it's issued, again, not by the state of Michigan, not by the government of the United States, but it is issued by the Macosta County authorized by their board of supervisors. And it's almost like a bond because the idea is, it says here on the currency, the idea is that they will pay to the bearer face value of this certificate at 3% per annum from the date of issue. So Annum. Annum per year. Got it. So it's it's worth a dollar now. Let's say Casey has one of these. It's worth a dollar now. And then every year that he holds on to it, it's worth 3% more than it was. So really what they're doing is kind of investing. And again, it's an IOU with a baked-in interest rate. Some of these were almost like bonds of some kind, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then you can also see some of the wooden things. There were real wooden nickels or wooden token scripts. There's a wooden dollar uh, from North Bend, Oregon. And there's uh, there, there are other wooden scripts from Washington. The, the point we're making is that these were occurring in st- more than one state. You know what I mean? This was not just like one innovative answer from one small town. No, absolutely not. And it's interesting, too, because a lot of these, I mean, they had to be hand-issued, or at least to give them a sense of legitimacy, they were signed by officials. 
You know? Yeah. yeah. It, lo- it looks to me, based on the difference in the printing, like uh, this this uh, Washington fish skin parchment script from 1934 has three signatures on it. The uh, base printing of the actual certificate is blue, and the, the signatures are in black ink. So I'm assuming that these were not just printed, they were signed by hand to give them real weight and legitimacy. Quite possibly, yeah, because they were functioning as legal documents. That's another thing. This stuff, when it happened, it didn't happen because everybody in the country at the same time made up a similar plan. A lot of people were arriving at this process by what we call parallel thought, you know, and that's why the script type. So the thing about the U.S. dollar and think about most national currencies is they all work the same way across the country. These did not. These were different types of certificates, right? We had payroll warrants. We had credit vouchers, uh, tax anticipation notes. They worked in different ways. You know what I mean? One thing was a dollar and it was always going to be a dollar in your community, but the other thing would be a dollar the first year and then it would accrue value over time like a bond, right? Absolutely. And it's so interesting because considering how many different uh, types of these there were, there's really no way to figure out what the total uh, volume and circulation was. Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, because they could have – some of them might have really stuck around for a minute and, and done well. Some of them might have been so um, – niche and kind of for a small community that they were you never would have even heard about them some of them were probably pretty fly by night and i bet you there were some pretty serious opportunities for scam artists in this situation as well oh yeah absolutely a stranger comes to town right (laughs) and he issues a currency tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville. Oh, 
right? It's- oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I think what we do know, though, is that about 200 cities issued their own currency. That's right. We we do know over 200 issued them, but it, when we it gets tricky when we try to evaluate how much value these scripts represent and then put that in dollar terms. There's one estimate that put it at around a uh, billion dollars, but – you know, again, that's that's speculation. However, if you want to read more about this, there's a fantastic paper called Local Money in the United States During the Great Depression by Lauren Gatch over at the Department of Political Science in the University of Central Oklahoma. And this paper walks through some of the different comparative values of script based on the type they were. You know, like a tax anticipation script, you couldn't spend that far outside of your town, but you could spend it as a form of tax payment to the local government. So it was kind of like a script with a superpower. And what what Gatch finds, and this may be controversial to some of us, what Gatch finds is that this phenomenon proved that local money was actually possible in a modern economy on a wide scale. So I have to I have to ask you, Noel, and uh, let's ask our fellow listeners as well. What do you think about this idea of uh, local money? Do you think it's it's a good idea? Do you think it's just a band-aid? Well, I don't think it matters so much what I think. What matters uh, is what Uncle Sam thought. At the time, <laughs> Was right? it legal? Was yeah. it legal? Uh, is this okay? Is this essentially a form of counterfeiting? Um, I, I would say, no, you're not making copies of legal tender. You're going a step further and making your own currency. Um, and here's the thing. Um, the federal government, since the Civil War, uh, had done their damnedest to deal with issues of private currencies, or let's call it non-national currencies. But um, most script of the 30s was not necessarily illegal. No, it's kind of a – it's tough to make it illegal because they're not saying it's necessarily 
replacing. They're not explicitly saying it's replacing the dollar. Uh, it's it's almost it, you could make a good argument that it's just a, a legal document representing an agreement between two or more people, which is how legal documents work. Totally. So of course the Fed doesn't like this at all. So hey, that's our job. We we do the coupons, uh, but. As you said, Noel, most forms of the script were skirting just on the side of legality, right? So what we end up seeing is that there was no coordinated Fed effort on Uncle Sam's part to suppress these currencies. Their job was more to make the real system work better as to make people not have a reason to use the scripts anymore. Right, right. Like now they let's just make these keepsakes. And we have to we have to take a note here. Currency is a very, very, very powerful tool. And it's more powerful, I think, than a lot of people imagine. Like even now, one of the big controversies of the modern era is the question over which currency should be used to pay for fossil fuels. That's what we call it, the petrodollar, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, while it may not seem like a big deal, it may, you know, for many people, it may sound like money is money is money. That's not entirely true. So it's kind of surprising that the Fed did not crack down on these local currencies, and they did the smart thing. They did just like you said, Noel. They... They made the existing system more attractive and made script seem less and less necessary. And the thing is, we, we get ask, did it work? It depends on which way you look at it. It certainly worked as a Band-Aid, as like a stopgap measure so people could continue buying necessary goods and services and not end up riding in the streets or uh, having to exchange glue for eggs, for horseshoes, and creating this bizarre web of of, uh, bartering that wasn't sustainable. So, yeah, I would say it worked as far as that is concerned. Yeah, I would say say it worked um, on a better-than-nothing level. Totally. You know what I mean? So we quickly learned some rules here that that guide us. So some were more successful than others, uh, but here are the basic rules we found. Script, no matter what it was, became less acceptable if you printed too much of it or if the backing or basis for redemption became invalid. So if somebody came back at that Macosta County in Michigan, and pardon me if I'm mispronouncing that, by the way, if someone came back to that county in Michigan and they had their dollar and it was not accepted or it wasn't given the ba- the value that it was agreed to have then all of those all of those dollars seem worth a little bit less because people can't trust it and you know what's interesting is that going back to that article we mentioned earlier the scripts that seemed to work best were either the ones on the absolute smallest scale or the ones that could be used as payment for municipal fees or tax. That's the one that gets the closest to being illegal. That is kind of like paying your um, your DMV fee or your driver's license fee or something in a currency that you made up. That's right. That's not going to fly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uncle Sam's company store does not accept this. No. 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 We do – 
kind of know the ending for this story. Mm -hmm. That's a hard kind of. This might be interesting. So let's call these scripts an economic experiment. Uh, Uncle Sam's plan works, and when when the conditions that lead to the script go away and dissipate, the script itself disappears. These alternative currencies go the way of the dodo, as we so often say. Or did they? Yeah, because apparently um, throughout the 30s, uh, the small U.S. town of Tenino, Washington, was dealing with the Great Depression just like everywhere else. Um, But their problems didn't really get stitched up in the same way that everyone else's did because they only had one bank, the Citizens Bank of Tenino, and it closed completely after it ran out of cash. So um, the bank was one of just over a 1,000 that closed in the fourth quarter of 1931. Um, But for Tenino, which is a very, very small town population-wise, they only had this one bank. Things were really, really rough. So in order to deal with this cash issue, um, the Thurston County Independent newspaper publisher Don Major asked the city council to allow him to start facilitating a currency within the community. And they uh, still print those today, these little IOU slips. And by the time they had more or less temporarily, as we mentioned, you know, the way these things tended to go, solved the problem – there was kind of a demand for these, and uh, this guy Major was able to turn this monetary, you know, catastrophe into a real successful publicity stunt. Right. So even after what we call the Depression had finally abated, the town of Tonino continued printing wooden money as souvenirs and commemorative bills, usually annually, because people loved collecting them. You know what I mean? Uh, This even went on in the 1990s. The original press, as far as we could find, is still in operation. It gets fired up at least once a year to make souvenirs for their annual Oregon Trail Days celebration, which I definitely want to go to. And you can even buy pieces of this wooden currency or script at local businesses today, such as the famous Scotty B's Cafe. And here's the thing. In the town, they can still function as money. That's right. Um, and it does. But it's also, you know, it's, it's, admittedly, it's a little bit more of a kitschy kind of uh, fun thing that they're doing to kind of keep the past alive or whatever, but they do accept it. Um, the An analog to this that I have seen is a lot of local farmer's markets here in Georgia will issue these wooden tokens that you can exchange if you have what's called SNAP or it's like basically the yeah, equivalent food of stamps. food stamps. You can take your EBT card and swipe it, and then they will give you these tokens that are $2 to $1 of investment uh, from your EBT. So the idea is they give you double your money for um, using these tokens and you're shopping locally. So it's – but at the end of the day, you still exchange these tokens at the farmer's market mm-hmm. instead of money. Right, and there are still local or community currencies around today. And it, and it's funny because they haven't – I guess they, they have sort of gone away, but they've never really disappeared. And the rise of our digital information networks over the past few decades has also given rise to purely non-physical digital uh, currencies. Like, uh, you know, Casey and I have always I've always talked about years and years and years ago uh, when we were we were at our old office in Buckhead deciding whether or not Bitcoin would be a fad. Do you remember that, Casey? 
I remember that very clearly. And I, uh, I remember investing in Bitcoin and I remember selling at the wrong point. Ah, Casey on the case. Me too, man. And for now, as we record this, uh, if you are listening hundreds or thousands of years in the future, write to us and let us know if the U.S. dollar has stuck around or if it is a fad and if so, what has replaced it. It may take a while for uh, someone to answer. It may not be us, but hopefully you'll get a reply. That'd be cool if the show was around for centuries. Oh, man. Yeah, I would love that. I mean, at least keep us in, uh, you know, script. Script form. Script form, yeah. You can write us at ridiculous at iheartradio.com or you can uh, join our Facebook group at Ridiculous Historians where you can uh, chat with all your other ridiculous history pals and uh, exchange memes and barbs and, and you know debate things that we talk about the issues. You can call us out on mistakes we made. That's fun. Um, whatever you want to do, it's there for you to do it. You can also find us personally on Instagram, learn about my various misadventures getting kicked into and kicked out of cities, regions, and countries at Ben Bolin. You can check me out at Embryonic Insider. It's mainly pictures of my kid doing the dab, um, going to farmer's markets, little travel stuff here and there. I like to take a lot of weird pictures with no people in it. My mom says that makes them boring, but I have a good time with it. Thank you to Casey Pegram, our super producer. Thank you to Alex Williams, who composed our track. Thanks to everybody who has written into us or written to their fellow listeners on the Facebook page. And hey, Noel, Thank you for being a friend. Hey, man. Travel down that road and back again. Hand in hand. You're a friend and I don't know. See you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.